0: Yeah. Um, at this point, children in kindergarten are welcome to primary church. And what I'm going to go ahead and open us up with prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Father, I pray now that you would come and open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. I pray that as we look at this church in Smyrna, it's quite different than the church in Ephesus. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, as I mentioned in my prayer, we're looking at the second church of the seven that churches in the book of Revelation. And the church we're looking at today is Smyrna. And before we, we look at the text, I wanted to read you a, uh, an account, really. It's not a story. It's, it's an eyewitness account. You know, when I w- became a Christian and then I went in the army and then I went to college at Florida State, one of the greatest things to ever happen to me as a young Christian who had just gotten out of a ranger battalion to go to college that kept me uh, thinking that Christianity was sort of manly, I guess, was finding Fox's Book of Martyrs. Right? If, you've, if you've not read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it basically it's written in the 16th century, and it's, it's one man's account of all the martyrs from the New Testament up through his time it's sort of like a a 16th century version of a thousand ways to die I mean they they were so creative in the way they killed Christians and the first one person recorded the first martyr that is recorded outside of the New Testament is this man named Polycarp and so I wanted to read you some of his story and this is from uh, one of the ancient church fathers it's a volume called The Martyrdom of Polycarp and basically he is he has a dream, and he tells his contemporaries. He says, "I must needs be burned alive," and they say, "Yeah, you know, you, you have to be." And he says, "Well, yeah, that's what I see coming." And so, what basically happens? I'm going to just read this to you. The police come. They arrest him. He's out at someone's country estate, and he asks for an hour to pray and they give him an hour to pray, and apparently he is so godly in his countenance that the men who came to arrest him are just weeping, to the, you know, because they have to carry him away to the Colosseum or in the, in the, the stadium, they called it, in order to be martyred. And so where I'm picking up the story is when he came into the stadium. And mind you, this is an eyewitness account. It says, now as he was entering the stadium, there came to Polycarp a voice from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Like a voice from heaven came to Polycarp and said, Man up. Okay? And no one saw the speaker, but the voice was heard by those people who were there. And thereupon he was led forth, and great was the uproar of them that heard Polycarp have been seized. Accordingly, he was led before the proconsul, who asked him if he were the man himself. And when he confessed, the proconsul tried to persuade him, saying... Have respect to thine age and so forth according to thy customary form. Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent. Say, away with the atheists. Then Polycarp looked with a severe countenance on the mob of lawless heathen in the stadium and he waved his hand at them. And looking up to heaven, he groaned and said, away with the atheists. But the proconsul urged him and said, swear and I will release thee. Curse the Christ. And Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him. And he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. <laughs> if thou repent not, I will throw thee to them. But he said, send them. For repentance from better to worse is not a change permitted to us, but to change from cruelty to righteousness is a noble thing. And then the proconsul said, you could tell he's becoming frustrated. He said, if they'll... If, Thou cost despise the wild beasts I'll make thee to be consumed by fire If if thou repent not And Polycarp answered Thou threatenest the fire that burns for an hour And in a little while is quenched For thou knowest not of the fire of judgment to come And the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly But why delayest thou Bring what thou wilt Translation Bring it Do it Are we going to yap all day Or are you going to burn me and so they took him to the, to, the, to the stake where they were going to burn him and they, they began to tie him up and he stopped them. And a, it says, Now all, all these things happen with such speed and less time than it takes to tell for the mob straightway brought together timber and lumber from the workshops and baths, the Jews giving themselves zealously to the work as they were like to do. They were about to nail him to the stake when he said, Let me be as I am. He that granted me to endure the fire will also grant me to remain at the pyre unmoved, without being secured by nails. So at length the lawless ones, seeing that his body could not be consumed by the fire, bade an executioner approach him to drive in a dagger. And when he had done this, there came out such an abundance of blood that it quenched the fire. And all the multitude marveled at the great difference between unbelievers and the elect. Now, Polycarp did not have anything on Chuck Norris, right? I mean, that was unbelievable. He stood there to be burned, and the fire would not consume him, and finally someone said, stab him, they stabbed him. Now, why did I read you that story? Why is Polycarp so important to this story? Polycarp is incredibly important to this particular story because sometime prior to the year 110 A.D., Polycarp was made the bishop of the Church of Smyrna. In other words, shortly after the book of Revelation was written, Polycarp was made the bishop of the church at Smyrna. The church that we're going to look at today, and the church that we're going to look at today is experiencing persecution and trials and struggles, and and Jesus is telling them that they are about to get crushed by the devil. Some scholars even think that when John wrote the, the letter to the church at Smyrna, that the angel that he was talking about was Polycarp. So what is, it, what is it that makes a polycarp a polycarp? What is it that makes you able to say to someone who's about to burn you alive, bring it? We're going to look at that today as we consider. First, we're going to do a little review. We're looking at Revelation 2, 8 through 11, first press, Smyrna, I'm calling it. All of them will be first press. When we think about a review, of it, we're not going to look, review the whole book of Revelation. If I had an hour, we might, but we're not. Basically, if you remember, the book was addressed to the seven churches that were in Asia. That it's one letter that has seven letters in it, but the whole thing is one big letter. And if you remember the seven churches in Asia, basically two of them, the first one you read about and the last one you read about, are what I'm going to call bad. And by bad, I don't mean they were evil or something. I just mean that they had situations that needed desperately to be addressed. Jesus said, if you don't address... Remember we talked about Ephesus. If you don't repent and turn, I will take out your lampstand. So they have problems that are very drastic. The, the middle two, you have two good churches. Smyrna is one of the good churches. And by good, I don't mean that they're necessarily angelic. I just mean that Jesus has nothing against them. That they're, they're blameless, if you will. That when he speaks to them, he speaks encouragement. And so Smyrna is going to be one of the churches that he is going to encourage. Now when you look at the pattern of these letters, it's very interesting, because remember last week, as we talked about uh, Ephesus, they were strong with, the, with regard to orthodoxy, and with regard to their programs, and their service, but they did not have love for the lost. And Jesus says, I have that against you. In other words, the, the, the emphasis is to, to be outwardly faced, and go and engage the world. Now interestingly enough, in Smyrna we find out what happens when you engage the world. And, it, and it's not always pretty. And yet, you know, you see, you think, wow, if you get persecuted by engaging the world, maybe I won't. Well, then you're at letter number three. <laughs> so the middle churches in this letter are mixed. And by mixed, I mean that they have some good qualities and they have some qualities that could use some work. Jesus doesn't threaten to take them out, but he definitely addresses their, their downsides. And so with all that, it leads us to Smyrna... The city, you've got to understand the city because understanding the city helps you understand what's going on in this letter incredibly. For one, it's the only city that still exists. Okay, and, and now it's called Izmir. So if, you, if you've ever looked up the seven churches or something and you saw one that was Izmir and not Smyrna, that's it. Smyrna is Izmir now. Also, it's about 35 miles, miles north of Ephesus. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, who you read... They either had 100,000 people or they had 200,000 people. But if you ask someone from Smyrna, there was no one bigger than they were. And there was no one better than they were. They're a very proud city, and I mean that in the best sense of the word. They're proud of who they were. Around the 3rd or 4th centuries, probably 4th or 5th century, uh, Smyrna was destroyed in the year 293 B.C., I think. Uh, Alexander the Great came through and saw what great potential this city has and so he ordered that it be rebuilt and when they rebuilt it they built it bigger and better and more beautiful than ever and so one of the things they're known for is their beauty in fact on their own coins they had printed the first city in Asia in size and in beauty that's like a chamber of commerce move if you think about it but the other seven churches they didn't have a vote they didn't say who do you think is the first in, in size and beauty Everyone vote for Smyrna. Smyrna declared that of themselves and put it on their coinage. So at least they had a good self-esteem, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. Also, they're very proud because more than likely Homer came from Smyrna, the great Greek poet. More than the beauty, though, they were known for their loyalty, specifically their loyalty to Rome. From the time that you can trace back to when Rome started to become a world power, at least the known world, Smyrna was behind them. In fact, Smyrna was so patriotic, if, if they had some version of 4th of, of July for Rome, it would every day in Smyrna would have been 4th of July for Rome. In fact, Cicero, who's a great uh, lawyer and a great historian for Rome, said that of uh, Smyrna that they are the city of our most faithful and most ancient allies. So they didn't just think of themselves as being loyal to Rome, but Rome thought of them as being loyal to Rome, and that's probably a good thing for them. Also, uh, they were incredibly loyal to the imperial cult. What's the imperial cult? Remember, the imperial cult is basically all the emperors were more or less narcissistic, and all of them more or less expected worship, some more, like Domitian, probably around this time. And the imperial cult was when you had to sort of throw incense and bless the emperor, or to bow down at some altar in favor of the emperor. But in fact, they were the first city in, the, in Asia Minor to build a temple to the goddess Roma or Dea Roma, they called her, in 195 BC. They also built a, a temple, I think, for Caesar Augustus. They built a temple for Tiberius. So all things were Roman. Smyrna was it, and Smyrna was known for that by the Romans. So where does that lead? If that leads you to politics, and what were the politics like there? Basically, everything, their economic security and social status was dependent upon participation in the Roman imperial cult. In other words, more than any other city that we know of in Asia Minor, in order to have a job, you had to participate in this cult. In other words, it was like a union card to, to say Caesar is Lord or as a union card to participate in a trade union that might build something for Caesar. So on one hand, you had the Roman imperial cult, and on the other hand, you had a very large Jewish population. And if you remember from the introduction, a month ago maybe now, one of the problems Christians had is they were pinched between the Romans who expected something and the Jews who expected something or who were at least sort of throwing them under the bus. And another way to look at it is, on one hand, the Christians were caught between a rock in a hard place in Smyrna. The Romans really expected in Smyrna of all places that you would get with the program when it came to worshiping Caesar. That's why Polycarp was martyred, that the first Christian martyr outside of the New Testament is from Smyrna. On the other hand, the Jews, we're going to find out from the text, apparently spent a lot of time going after the, the Christians in order to get them in trouble with the Romans and that leads us to the church Everything we know about Smyrna the church is really from these few verses, at least from biblically speaking. What we know from these verses is that Smyrna was faithful, that Smyrna was slandered, they were pressured, and they were poor. Okay? Part of the reason they were poor is because they were slandered and pressured. In other words, if you couldn't have a job or participate in trade unless you participated in the Roman cult, well, that would affect you financially, and that's apparently what happened. So what is also an interesting fact, I think, is it's also the only church that still exists of the seven churches. So the church, it's interesting that the church in the Revelation that went through the hardest time, that went through the most stuff, is also the only one that exists. It's Eastern, Eastern Orthodox now but it traces its lineage all the way back to the original church in Smyrna. So when we talk about the fact that they were slandered, you know, we're going to look at, and it talks about the, the, some from the synagogue of Satan who were slandering them. What was the slander? We have no idea what it was in this particular text, but we do know from church history what kinds of things Christians were accused of. And what is slander? Slander is an accusation that's not true. It's a lie that's not true. And what... What exactly were Christians accused of? Well, There's a lot of things. I only put six of them because I ran out of space. The first thing, maybe the most common, was cannibalism. Now, why does that surprise you? You don't think it would be weird if someone walked by a church building and they heard from the inside, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me? That's what they said, that these Christians, they are eating the flesh and blood of a dead guy. Not only that, they accuse them of immorality. Poke your head into a church, you didn't know anything about it, and all these people are calling themselves brothers and sisters and they're kissing. No, 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 no. That's not good. Right? Greet one another with a holy kiss. They were also accused of home wrecking. Why? What, would Jesus, what did Jesus say? Unless you hate your father and mother and follow me, you have no part in the kingdom of God. That sounds like home-wrecking to me, to be honest with you. What else did they do? They accused them of atheism, because Caesar was the only God. They also accused them of being disloyal. And finally, they accused them of this thing called incendiarism. Right? For something to be incendiary means uh, for it burns, it, it causes trouble. So in other words, if they couldn't get you on cannibalism, immorality, home-wrecking, atheism, disloyalty, there was a nice umbrella term called incendiarism, which just meant they are troublemakers. Whenever Christians are around, they're troublemakers. And so we don't know which one of those particular was leveled at the Christians in Smyrna, but those are the kinds of things we know were leveled at that time. And so with all these things said, what's Jesus' message for Smyrna? If you remember, last week I told you that when you look at the seven letters of Revelation, each of the letters begins with something from the original vision in this book. So last week had to do with being outwardly faced, and it began with the lampstands, which has to do with our being outwardly faced. And this one has to do with persecution and suffering and tribulation and trials. And so how does this open? To the angel of the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last. So for people who are in the midst of trials, tribulations, struggles, what they need to hear apparently is that Jesus is in control of all things. That all the adversity he sends me in this sad world comes to me not by chance but by his fatherly hand. Okay? That's what it means when he says I'm the first and the last. But more than that, he who died and came to life, why does he say that? Why does he remind them of that? Why is it so important for for people who are suffering being persecuted to keep that in mind? And I think the answer is pretty simple. It's just this, it's that a Christian view of suffering always begins with the cross. A Christian view of trials and tribulations. In other words, when you look at the cross, when you when you when the question comes to your mind and you say, Why is this happening to me? Why do bad things happen to me? Why do bad things happen in the world? Why is all this stuff happening? For a Christian, at least, the place you've got to begin in order for things to make sense is you look at the cross. And you look at the cross and you say, well, why this? Why the cross? Well, the cross is there because of this thing called sin. And all the way back at the original creation, when it entered, when sin entered creation, it polluted everything. So when you begin to to read the Bible, not just the book of Revelation, but the whole Bible, what you see is that Jesus came not just to redeem you and me, which he did, But he came to redeem all of creation. The reason bad things happen is because things are not the way they're supposed to be. And Jesus came, and when you look at the cross, you see, well, the reason he had to come was because things are not the way they're supposed to be. But also when you look at the cross, you realize that that is the way he is fixing things back to the way they're supposed to be. He is bearing the curse. He bears the sin. And when he rises from the dead and shows that he is is the true son of God and our representative, Then we can begin to make sense of suffering. But also, you know, C.S. Lewis said it was pretty simple. He said, even if you blame God for suffering in the world, you look at the cross and you say at least he was willing to take his own medicine. Okay? So that leads us to verse 9. What does verse 9 say? It opens by saying, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, there are two things we're going to look at here. I mean, again, I could spend a whole sermon on this. I want you to look at the word tribulation, and I want to look at the phrase synagogue of Satan. Because those of you who thought you couldn't wait to study Revelation, and you couldn't wait to like, find out some of the, the, the sort of wacky stuff, or the things that like, oh, what does this mean, or what does that mean? Today we just get a taste of that. Okay? And so first, when you talk about tribulation, what do we mean by that? Tribulation in the Greek is the word flipsis, it's T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, and, and just technically it means pressure or to squeeze, sort of like a wine press would squeeze, and here's what's important for you to know, is that in the New Testament, it is never used to describe the frustrations of everyday life. So you know how I'm constantly complaining that nothing's easy? or you drive on the, uh, any highway in the state of Washington, and if the speed limit's 50, there'll be someone in the right lane that's driving 50 and someone in the left lane that is driving 50 exactly beside them. That's not flipsis. That's just craziness, but the, either way. That's not what this is about. It's not the, the daily indignities that we go through. It means, in the New Testament, it's always used this way. It's always used in connection with the coming of the kingdom of God. Okay? Okay? Now, the Bible does address the daily indignities of life and and the sufferings that we go through. But the kind of pressure that we're talking about here is pressure. I think I have another slide here. It's pressure when the values of the kingdom of God come into conflict with the values of the kingdom of this world. When the values of the kingdom of God come into direct conflict with the values of the kingdom of this world. And if you have either watched television or read the newspaper or listened to the radio or got on the internet, if you've been any other place but under a rock this past week, you've seen this happen over and over again. Right? A year or two ago, the Affordable Health Care Act was passed. And just recently, it was declared to the Catholic Church that they would have to start providing abortion services and and birth control and all these things that are in conflict with their doctrine. And they said, what? We're not doing it. That is the perfect definition of tribulation in the Bible. It's when these two things come together. The powers of this world say you have to do one thing and your faith says you have to do something else. Also, this past week, uh, the issue of gay marriage was approved by the state senate. What is the church going to do there? You know, Judy and I had several dear friends who are gay, but you know what? I can't do their wedding. I wouldn't. If the state forces that, that is flips us that is tribulation what for example every year i hear some rumors that the the government is going to remove the church's tax exemption and it always amazes me how much the church sort of squeals about that but the question is is if they remove the church's tax exemption would you still give if you got no benefit from it in your taxes at some point, we will probably have to deal with that. At some point, we'll probably have to deal with all the above. At some point, more and more, we're going to have to be faced with these things. So the letter to the church at Smyrna is pretty important. And so, Synagogue of Satan, that, that was the one I had fun with last night. Because I was thinking, where have I ever used, heard Synagogue of Satan in connection with what kinds of things? And if you look it up on the internet, the first thing that comes up is just a number of conspiracies, in other words, the way that people remember—we talked about the historicist approach—that it's sort of like newspaper theology. That you read the, the Book of Revelation and you see in current events what's going on. And so, if you type into to Google or what is the synagogue of Satan, a number of things will come up. Like, for example, what is the synagogue of Satan? It's where the Illuminati hangs out, right? The Illuminati who has a secret plan for your life that may or may not involve aliens? Think about it. All right, what else? The Trilateral Commission, David Rockefeller, 1973. An alliance between the United States, Japan, and Norway? Think about it. There's got to be something crazy. What good could Norway have unless they have some connection with either aliens? Bigfoot? Who knows? The other thing, of course, that you often see is that the synagogue of Satan has to do with Hollywood. And depending how vitriolic people are, they would say, why? Because Hollywood is run by who? The Zionists, the Jews, that kind of thing. The the, the most unbelievable thing I've seen, and if you've ever seen So I Married an Axe Murder with Mike Myers, is who is really responsible for the synagogue of Satan. (laughs) I can't make this stuff up. It's the colonel. Why would the colonel be implicated in all this? According to Mike Myers, the Scottish father, it's because he puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes you crave for it nightly. That's why. Is that what is meant by synagogue of Satan? And it's interesting to see how many different directions people can run with a phrase. But you know the best place to figure out what synagogue of Satan means? It's just the Bible. Specifically, the book of John. In chapter 8, Jesus yet again is having an argument with the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of his day. They won't believe in him. And finally, here's what Jesus says about them. He says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He is a liar and the father of lies. Let me put that back. So what does it mean for some place to be the synagogue of Satan? You see, the whole point is that Satan is brought up here. Who is Satan? He's the father of lies. And if you have a whole synagogue who is slandering Christians to the Romans in order that Christians might be killed, in other words, they're lying, that makes them by definition, according to at least this passage, it makes them by definition a synagogue of Satan. Satan is the father of lies. And he says to the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. In other words, just being an ethnic Jew in the Bible doesn't necessarily do you a lot of good if you don't trust Jesus. And so he says that, so what does it mean to be the synagogue of Satan? It just means that that synagogue in Smyrna is throwing Christians under the bus and they are slandering them and lying about them. Now, by the way, for those who think you know, that everything in the book of Revelation is sort of coded and encoded, this is about the most un- unencoded thing that I've ever seen in my life. To say to Jewish people, your synagogue isn't a synagogue that worships God, but it is a synagogue of Satan. Even if it was code, the Jews would have probably been pretty upset. It would not have brought uh, good tidings upon the church. So probably the easiest way to read this is just the plain reading of it, is that they're liars. And lying is always associated with Satan. And by the way, this also gets us to a place to to be reminded of. This is a a little bit of a foretaste of what you're going to see in the the rest of the book of Revelation. Where you see the kingdom of the devil, the evil one, constantly in conflict with the Son of God. By the time you get, get going in the book of Revelation, you have the dragon against the lamb. And right here, in this particular church, you see the battle already starting to to heat up. But remember I told you that Revelation is about the fact that past tense, present tense, and future tense? The battle between the dragon and the lamb has been going on since Genesis chapter 3. Remember in Genesis 3.15, God said, "...the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and he will bruise his heel." That from the beginning of time, almost, there has been this battle between the dragon and the lamb over the people of God. And there is the city of God and the city of man. And so that's really what's going on here. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus knows, but, and that but there is mine, he knows, but he doesn't do what we would expect him to do or what we would like him to do. In other words, he says, I know the slander against you. I know your suffering. I know your poverty. And if we were God, if we were Jesus, or if one of our children are in trouble, what do we do? Everything we can to remove them from that situation. And what you hope Jesus is going to do, he says, I know all the bad things are happening to you, and I'm going to make them stop. I know all the bad things that are happening to you, and I'm going to remove them. I know all those horrible bad things, and I'm going to crush your enemies under your feet. And what does he say instead? He says, "Do not fear what you're about to suffer." Is that what you want him to say? Notice he doesn't say, "Not if," but "When." And the whole question you ought to be asking right now is, "What's the purpose?" In other words, he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. If suffering is going to come your way, it's like when you go to the doctor and they say, this won't hurt much. Relative to what? If Jesus said to me, I mean, I can't imagine any more nerve-wracking thing to hear Jesus say, Tommy, don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. What do you mean? Just don't be afraid, buddy. Well, like, what is it? Is it going to be cancer? Is it going to be jail? What? it? throw me a bone here. Don't worry about it. We're good. That's not what I want to hear. I want to hear purpose. And the very next thing Jesus says is what the purpose of it is, at least for Smyrna. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. That's your answer right there. The reason the, the church at Smyrna is going to go through suffering and trials and tribulation and the reason that the church at Kent, 1st EPC, will go through trials and tribulation. The first thing to notice for their context is that prison more than likely meant death. In other words, Romans didn't have a long-term incarceration program. You didn't go to Rome and they didn't say, you know what, Tommy, you did so a lot of bad stuff, we're going to give you life in prison. The only reason you went to prison in Rome was so they could figure out what to do with you next. And it was almost always a short period of time. And so when they said he said, some of you are going to go to prison, that's, that is basically saying you're going to die. Some of you are. Cheered up yet? The reason, he says, is for your testing. Let me read that. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days. And what does the word testing mean there? It means either to prove or it means to improve. So the reason Jesus says that they are going to go through trial and tribulation is either to prove their faith or it's to improve their faith. Both of those are acceptable situations, are they not? Polycarp, it looks like he was, his faith was proven to be very strong. But for some of us, we may go through trials and tribulation in order to improve our faith. In other words, think about that. Most of us, whenever anything hard comes along, including me, what's the first thing you do? You say, praise God, my tax exemption just got lifted. That gives me a chance to show my faith to the world, to show that I'm still going to give as much, to show that I need to trust Jesus. That's not what we say. We call lawyers. We call everyone in the world except usually Jesus. And could it be that most of the hard things that come along in our life come along because Jesus is actually trying to do something in us and through us and for us? That has to be the case if he's the first and the last. Remember, he's sovereign over all things. So the reason Jesus sends tribulation, biblically speaking, I think, is not because he's displeased with us, but in fact, because of his great love for us to wean us more and more from the the things of this world and more and more on to him. And that leads us to the whole question of 10 days. What does it mean here? He says, for 10 days you will suffer tribulation. And some people say that what 10 days means is is it's it's basically a complete number, but it's a number that means an indefinite period of time. Some people say that 10 days actually means 10 days. But for Smyrna, you've got to ask, okay, when does it start? In other words, some people think it's a long time, some people think it's a short time, and what do I think it means? I don't know. I tend to think it means, you know, 10 for Hebrews was the number of human completion. In other words, when when a baby's born, what do they do? They count. How many toes? Ten toes? Good. Ten fingers? Good. That maybe there's a sense in which Jesus is saying here that uh, all these tribulations are going to come, but it'll be just the exact amount that you need which would be consistent with the bible right that nothing comes our way that he's not able to to give us the strength to make it through so what does that take us to that takes us to the end he says be faithful unto death and i will give you a crown of life and what is the crown of life i mean a, a better way to read that maybe be would be to say the crown that is life in other words, if you're faithful unto death, you live, which is completely consistent with the Gospels. How do, you, how do you get your life in the Gospels? You give it up. How do you win in the Gospels? You lose. And what is Jesus saying here? When he says the crown of life, what he's not saying is this, diadema. In other words, he's not saying, if you're faithful unto death, then I'm going to give you the, the crown of life. And the, and the word is not diadem, which means a jeweled crown that royalty would wear. But instead he's saying this the crown of life is this thing called the Stephanos it's the laurels that they would give to someone who has won a victory or remember the apostle Paul says he says I fought the good fight I've run the race and now I'm ready for, to receive the crown of glory it's the crown that is given for having won the victory not the crown that is just made, given to you because you are royalty now why is that important? Because the question is, how do you win? How do you win the victory? How do you win the race? The only way that you can win the victory is by having faith in the one who has already won the victory. That Jesus has already lived the sinless life. He already died the death we should have died, and he rose from the dead. To the extent that we trust in him is the extent that we win. And the extent to which we are able to die to ourself and live to him is the extent to which we win. And there's an important distinction that is implied in this text, but it's not uh, spoken of directly. And that distinction is just this. It's a distinction between what theologians call the church militant and the church triumphant. Most of the complaints that we have and most of the, the struggles that we have as a church, and I mean all churches, not just our church, is because we actually want, we, we think we're in the church triumphant or we want to be in the church triumphant. And what is the church triumphant? The church triumphant is, is when basically when you die or at the end of all times when Jesus comes back to make everything well. Remember at the, at the congregational meeting every year, we have what? We have a reading of people who have entered the church triumphant. That the battle, they are not fighting anymore, but in fact, they are dwelling in the presence of Jesus. And guess what? If you're a Christian, at least, you only live in one of two churches. You're either in the church triumphant, which means you're dead, or you're in the church militant. And that has nothing to do with weapons and things like that. It has to do with engaging all the time. In other words, there's an evil one who is out there to crush the church and as long as you have breath, that will be the case. And as long as that is the case, we are part of the church militant which means we are constantly trying to assault the gates of hell. And when we begin to act like we're the church triumphant, like there is no battle, like we've already won, like all we have to do is if we can pay our bills and make sure that we don't have a mortgage and make sure that we're $100,000 over our mortgage, then we will be the church triumphant and everything will be fine. Guess what? Biblically speaking, I don't think that's the case. And in fact, it seems to me that even if we had $100,000 in the bank, which would make a lot of people happy, Jesus would probably send something else along. So you can pick which one you want. The bottom line is that we are militant as long as we have breath. And that leads to the last verse here. Verse 11 It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? Again, I didn't have time. and I knew I wouldn't have time this morning to, to, to go through all the different ways people interpret this. But it basically means just this. If you are alive and you are human, you are guaranteed one thing. Death. The first death. Everyone will die, and after that we'll face judgment. The question is is whether or not you will die a second time. In other words, will you die and go into the presence of God and be welcomed into heaven and dwell in the presence of Jesus? Or will Jesus say to you, depart from me, I never knew you? If he says depart from me, that is the second death. And Jesus says to the one who conquers through me, in me, that's not going to happen. So in other words, even if you die for your faith like Polycarp, you still win. Now it sounds real easy right here, right? Because we live in the United States and most people won't walk out of here thinking that's going to happen. But there are a lot of places in the world where that is the reality every single day. You know, I've heard some people have asked, and they've asked relatively critically, why would the senior pastor go to Ethiopia? Why would we spend any money on that? I'm going to Ethiopia this coming Saturday for a week. And what I'll be doing for a week is be training Somali pastors, radio staff, people that I think, if I remember correctly, have influence of of about 60 million people in the, the Horn of Africa. But all of those folks live under some kind of threat that we don't even have any idea of. The reason I would go there is because they need all the training they can get. They need all the help they can get. That sometimes we need to leave our comfort zone and actually enter into the suffering of others and that leads me to, to the end my favorite, one of my favorite martyr stories is the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer remember he opposed, he was a Lutheran pastor he opposed uh, the Nazis he actually became part of the resistance plotted to kill Hitler and he was taken to Flossenburg prison and on April 9th, 1945 he was taken to the gallows in order to be hanged and as he was walking up to the gallows he stopped in front of his friend uh, Bishop Albert Bell, who was a British, an Englishman, and he looked him in the eye and said, "For me, for you, this is the end. In other words, for you, Bishop Bell, this is a, it's over right now." He said, "But for me, it's the beginning of life. In other words, the Holy Spirit had worked in him, and he had trusted the gospel so much that he was able to embrace death because he knew something better." lasted after the end in other words he he was willing to give up hold of this world and the question that we're left with with the church at Smyrna and even Bonhoeffer's example Polycarp's example all the church's martyrs examples is how much are we willing to let go of the things of this world in order to pursue the kingdom of God think about that let's pray Father, I pray now that you would simply come, and I I don't pray martyrdom upon us. I don't even pray tribulation upon us. But I do pray that if and when it comes, that you would give us uh, grace. Grace like you gave the church at Smyrna. Grace like you gave Polycarp. Grace like you gave Bonhoeffer. Enable us to conquer through you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. At this point in the service, if you are able to stand, I'd ask you to stand and we will sing the doxology together.